Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. God's holy word from the New Testament, Mark 12, give your attention to the reading of it. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Then the season came. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other beloved son. Finally, he sent him to him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So what do you do with leftover pieces? That is, you're assembling something. Maybe you're putting together a new piece of furniture, a Lego set, or setting up a piece of technology. You could be DIYing your car, or upgrading your mountain bike, or repairing your lawnmower. Either way, you finish the job, and there's extra pieces. A few bolts, a washer, a spring, a pin. You double-check. You can't find where they go, and it seems to work fine without the pieces. So do you keep them or toss them? Well, last time you kept the extras and they just gathered dust in a coffee can. And so you chuck them, less clutter. But then a few months pass and you figure out that the pieces, what the pieces went to, and they, they were actually vital. You kick yourself for you threw away the essential piece. Well, this is exactly what the authorities are up to. They are trying to get rid of Jesus as a useless extra, from which we come to see with greater clarity how essential and precious is our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the end of chapter 11 broke off mid-scene. On this third day, we were are still in the temple, and the priests, scribes, and elders have yet or have Jesus surrounded yet. They just asked Jesus about his authority, and he stumped them so that he did not have to answer their inquiry explicitly. Our Lord, though, keeps the conversation going. The priests poke him with hostile questions, and so Jesus, in return, will tell them a story. He has a parable custom-made just for these men of distinction and power. Of course, as you'll recall from earlier in Mark, Jesus employed parables for the crowds in response to their unbelief. When the people got hard-hearted with our Lord, he made the switch to parables. In keeping with Isaiah chapter 6, 
The obscure parables keep the blind from seeing, the deaf from hearing, and the ignorant from understanding. Parables seal the unbelieving in the judgment they chose for themselves. Thus, with the murderous priest, a parable couldn't be more fitting. So, there was a man. He was just the guy who planted a vineyard. Now, grapes and wine were highly prized and valuable products, so this was a great business to get into. This guy, though, was a perfectionist. He wasn't going to cut any corners or halfway it. He was going to do it just right. Therefore, he surrounded his vines with a rock wall to keep out thieves and varmints. He put in his own wine press and vat in order to make and store wine on the premises, a valuable asset. Finally, he raised a tall tower right in the middle like a crow's nest on a ship, the best security system in the business. Everything was just right. Now, up to this point, our story is rather mundane. Such vineyard planting was as common as a hipster opening up a coffee shop today. However, our Lord's story so far feels stolen that he's plagiarizing without proper citation. For each verb up to this point and noun found in the same order is also found in Isaiah 5. Jesus is retelling this chapter from the great prophet of Isaiah. And this reference is like a cipher to this riddle of a parable. For Isaiah 5 is also parabolic. There Yahweh was the owner and planter. The people of Israel and Judah were the vineyard. And all the Lord's preparations were his tender love and gifts for the good of the people to be fruitful. Thus Jesus' parable is a story about the history of God and his people. It summarizes how the Lord has been good to his people and how they have responded to him. And as he dances with the high priestly authorities, such a history makes perfect sense. For these scribes and elders represent the history of Israel. So let's see if they match the good parts of the past or its bad parts. Though just as we hear Jesus playing the tune of Isaiah chapter 5, there's a twist. Jesus is not playing a golden oldie, but he's actually releasing a remake. For next, the man leases the vineyard out to tenant farmers and travels to another country. This alters the imagery from Isaiah 5 significantly. And Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing something similar to Isaiah 5, but he's making it his own. Unlike Isaiah 5, the issue is not the fruitfulness of the vineyard, but the quality of the renters. For this story assumes the vineyard is profitable. But will the tenant farmers pay the rent? And with this, Jesus' story remains quite real to life. Absentee landlords were a regular feature of life in Palestine and across the Roman world. A wealthy owner would live in the city or or another one of his properties, and then he would lease out his vineyard to tenants who would pay rent. In fact, we have examples of of these contracts from the ancient world. And sure enough, when the time came, the owner sent a servant to collect a portion of the harvest. 
and few things have changed. For landlords and renters often did not get along. Renters back then were no better at paying rent than they are today. These renters, though, are particularly nasty, for they take the servant, beat him, and send him away with empty pockets. It's bad enough not to pay rent. Paying what you owe is natural law. Everyone at all times knows that this is a basic duty. This is a first-grade truth of loving your neighbor. But these farmers not only flunk first grade, but they get violent. They rough up the servant. This is so uncalled for. And it quickly gets worse. The master sends out another servant who gets knocked on the head and is shamed. Landlord, though, is persistent, so he dispatches number three, who gets murdered by the farmers. The farmers murder the bill collector instead of paying him. This is worse than repossessing carpet in a bad neighborhood. And yet, for some odd reason, the landowner keeps trying. Servant after servant, he deputizes, and each one meets either a baseball bat or a bullet. How many servants of his die? We don't know, but it says many. This landlord has a truck full of abused and dead servants. And at this point, the parable becomes transparent to see clearly the history of Israel. What servants did God keep sending his people? The prophets. And what did the authorities of Israel do to these messengers from heaven? They ignored them, they beat them, and no small number they murdered. The offices of priest, scribe, and elder are splattered with the blood of the prophets. The forefathers of these priests, scribes, and elders were slayers of holy men sent by God. Now, of course, you cannot choose your parents, much less your distant ancestors, but you can choose to be like them or not. So will these authorities continue the pattern of, a, of prophet abuse, or will they kick the habit? Well, our Lord's story is just getting tense. Clearly, servants aren't getting the job done, so a light bulb goes on for, our, for the landlord. I know I will send my son. They will surely respect my son. He seems so confident that the fathers or the farmers will respectfully pay rent to the master's son. And our Lord shows his hand here a bit. As he says, the master had one beloved son. Now, the obvious link to Isaiah 5 identified the landlord as God, who now we learn has one beloved son and only beloved son. And this beloved son we have seen before twice in Mark, first at Jesus' baptism and then at at his transfiguration. The priest asked Jesus about his authority. He pointed them to John's baptism, who prepared the way of the Lord. And now he slips on the shoe of the son. He is God the Son, just in case they're keeping track. Nevertheless, in terms of the story, 
for the landlord to send his only son only confirms our suspicion that the landlord is mad. Is it the definition of insanity to repeat the same act and to expect different results? To let your servants be killed to collect a debt is bad enough, but your only son? This is too much. The character of the farmers is obvious. They're murderers. It's foolish to endanger your son for a bill. Though the folly of the landlord is a deliberate lesson on the mercy and patience of God. A familiar complaint is that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and judgmental. All he did was judge sinners. But as this parable depicts... The Lord was so long-suffering and merciful towards his wretched people that it looks practically foolish. In fact, the constant stream of prophets only magnifies how wicked these farmers were. The Lord gave them a perfect vineyard, ready-made to be fruitful. All they had to do was pay the rent. But instead, they slaughtered over and over again to keep every penny for themselves. The grossness of their sin couldn't be more in your face. And as the Old Testament Israel is a picture of all humanity, fallen in Adam, so we get a mirror in these tenant farmers. Our depravity is no better than these farmers. Moreover, the completeless, careless act of sending the Son further amplifies God's persistent mercy to save his people. For the prophets were calling the people to repent. And so the Son came proclaiming the kingdom of God to repent and believe in the gospel. Indeed, little do the farmers know that the Son was coming to tell them They didn't have to pay the rent. The son was going to pay their rent for them. But their greed had already laid their manslaughtering plans. Know what they say. It's the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They intend to take out the son in order to get their envy-green fingers on the entire vineyard. They want to displace the landlord completely and become their own sovereigns of the vineyard. And this is a very telling lens into the nature of sin and our rebellion against God. At first, the duty was just to pay rent, to give God his due. This is the demand for obedience and righteousness. Then it was to heed and respect the messengers, which turned into a blood battle between sinners and the Lord. Finally, the crime became a hostile takeover, which is a direct usurping of the Lord. To be owners of the vineyard in order to displace God and to seize the crown for yourself? This isn't merely idolatry, but it's self-idolatry. Hence, the chief enemies is Satan, who sets himself over God as the Antichrist. And the serpent whispers in our ears that we can be like God. You can be your own little gods. 
Now, most sins are not nearly so heinous, but all sins vector in this direction if left unchecked. Thus, we should not be insensitive to such sins in the church. Sure, this parable is particularly a story of Old Testament history, which does differ from the New Testament in significant ways. But there's also similarities. Particularly, the chief felony in this parable is the removing of the son. Now, thankfully, Jesus can no longer be killed. That was once for all. Yet, displacing Jesus Christ in the church can and does happen every time the true gospel is lost or corrupted. Yes, by false gospels, the church authorities have removed Christ from the covenant life of the saints, and they set themselves up as Lord of the vineyard, miniature antichrist. True gospel preachers have been beaten and killed, and Christ has been tossed out of the church. The evil spirit and vile morality of these farmers is still alive and well in the church today. And against this, we must always be vigilant. Indeed, Jesus finishes up this parable with another Old Testament verse. After the death of the Son, there's nothing left for the Lord of the vineyard to do but to come and destroy the tenants. Here our Lord forecasts the judgment on these temple authorities for the murder that they're about to commit against him. Yet this is kind of an unsatisfying ending to our story. The farmers are judged, okay, good, but what about the poor son? This is like when your favorite TV series kills off the best character. Thus our Lord has a second ending. He says, have you not read the scriptures? Here he asks Bible scholars if they've read their Bibles. Oh, they have, but that doesn't mean they understand it. Then he cites Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone. Now, this is a building metaphor, but it's not really about building here. In the psalm, it refers to the king who appeared defeated and rejected, but then was vindicated to enter the gates of righteousness. The simple point of the metaphor is that a, that the piece that was thrown away ends up being the most essential part. For the cornerstone is, is the indispensable piece of the foundation. Without it, the foundation fails and the whole house falls. Yet the builders, the supposed experts, threw the stone away like a leftover washer. Don't need this useless clutter. In the same way, the tenants butchered the son and tossed him outside the vineyard for the crows to pick on. They impaled and disposed of the heir to steal the inheritance. But in reality, the son was the one and only avenue to receiving the inheritance as a free gift. Those who should have known better exterminate the very sun without which there is no future, no life, no inheritance. 
And sure enough, the authorities want this sad story to come true. They know Jesus is telling this story about them. They're not very good with the scriptures. They're horrible with the faith. And they have no patience for anybody who's critical of them. And so they take their leave of Jesus and continue to scheme on how they may arrest him. They're still afraid of the crowds, so they have to be careful. But they devise a way to arrest and kill the the Lord, our son, or our Lord, the son, and our cornerstone. And yet how does the rejected stone become the cornerstone? How is the murdered son vindicated as essential? Well, Jesus keeps in the next verse from his citation of Psalm 118. The trash stone becomes the cornerstone by the Lord's doing. Only a divine act by God himself can dig the stone out of the dumpster and place it in the corner. And this amazing act of God is marvelous in our eyes. The miraculous reclamation of the stone is splendid and spectacular before our sight. And what is this referring to? The resurrection of the Son. Yes, the only way a dead son can become indispensable for receiving the inheritance is for him to come back to life. The marvelous vindication of the son is the fa- his fantastic resurrection from the dead to become the firstborn of new creation. This is how Jesus becomes the cornerstone for your salvation and your eternal life with God. It is how Christ is essential to your redemption and your whole life. For without the resurrection of Christ, our religion is useless. Without the resurrection of the body, we are most to be pitied. For in the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated as the righteous one that death could not hold. His resurrection is the declaration of heaven that Jesus paid the rent for you. He fulfilled all righteousness to make you the righteousness of God in him by faith alone. By his resurrection, Jesus is proclaimed to be the true heir who owns the everlasting inheritance of heaven that you inherit in him as a gift of grace. What could be more marvelous? Jesus, the Son of God, died for the wicked farmers like us in order to obtain a place for us in his inheritance forever. Beloved, this is your Savior, your cornerstone, apart from whom you have no salvation. And so may your faith ever be founded upon Christ, rooted and grounded in him and his resurrection. Indeed, may we be founded in Christ and his gospel so that we are never parted from him. Let Christ never be displaced, but may the resurrected son be front and center, our cornerstone in all of our life and of all of our faith. 
And in this way, the marvelous work of God is ever before our eyes so that we can praise him forever through our earthly lives and then in glory. Amen. Let us pray.